Well, thank you for joining our verse-by-verse Bible study. I'm your host, Randy Duncan. We are in episode number 14, and in this episode, we are going to wrap up chapter 4. In the last episode, we discussed Cain and Abel, uh, the offerings they brought to God. We talked about Cain's murdering of Abel, and then God's punishment of Cain part of which is that the ground would no longer yield to his efforts, which is ironic, seeing as that Cain was a farmer. And as a reminder, and sort of uh, in order to pick up where we left off, remember God says to Cain as the other part of his punishment that you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain responds and says that my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And we ended that last episode asking the question, who were these other people? I mean, was it not just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel? And now that Abel has been killed off, who else is there? I mean, who is it that Cain is afraid of? Which brings us now to verse 15. Verse 15 and 16 say, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know, one of the difficulties sometimes in doing a a Bible study is figuring out how how to lay out and determine what order you want to address situations like this where there's just so much going on, so much material that you want to cover. So with that said, let's first talk about God's response to Cain here. Cain says that if anybody sees him, they will kill him. And God says, not so. Or God would take out vengeance on them sevenfold. And we'll get to this in a moment, but notice how Cain already knows that there are other people out there. And he's afraid of what they're going to do to him. Notice also that God doesn't argue that fact. By his response, God is implying that he's also aware that there are other people out there. And if they, any of those other people, kill Cain, God will take vengeance on them sevenfold. So what we know for certain, based on this conversation, is that there are definitely other people out there. But God puts a mark on Cain warning people about attacking Cain. And to my knowledge, we don't know what the mark was. Some people think it was uh, something like a tattoo. Uh, Some have even suggested that the mark may have been in the shape of a cross. But the fact of the matter is, we simply don't know. What we do know is that whatever it was, it was sufficient to communicate to others, to warn them that they had better not attack Cain. Now these verses here also tell us that Cain settled in the land of Nod, which was east of Eden. And here's something interesting. Did you ever realize that the word Nod in Hebrew means wandering? And I believe this may be the only time Nod is mentioned in all of Scripture. And we're not certain of exactly where the land of Nod was located, other than it just being east of Eden. But it's interesting that Cain is now alienated from God, uh, and that he's a wanderer with no place to settle. And I think that may be how we all are to some degree at some point in our life. Until we're no longer alienated from God, till we're no longer separated from God, just like Cain, we're not going to find lasting rest. Until we're no longer alienated from God, 
we'll have no place to live or to abide in true peace. Look, regardless of how successful or happy you may be at times in your life, there's always going to be that something that you're looking for. That's something which nothing else can satisfy. You're not going to find the true peace and happiness you're searching for. There will always be something missing, always be something lacking. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we can't be happy with our lives. I mean, there are plenty of people who would say that they're perfectly happy with their lives apart from God. And although at times we may think that we can find that place we're searching for, that we can somehow, uh, through various means, substitute the lack of relationship with God with other things in our lives, the truth is that we can do no such thing. You can't replace God with things, with material possessions, or uh, even with other relationships or accomplishments. You can't do it by making your mark on the world or leaving behind a legacy. You know, the world is full of uh, modern day examples of people, whether they're celebrities, athletes, uh, could be CEOs of businesses, who seem to have it all, and yet they're miserable. Even Alexander the Great, after conquering all of the known world, fell down on his bed, crying that there were no more worlds to conquer. And just like Cain here, as long as we're alienated from God, we are not going to find sustained or lasting peace. Well, why do you think God did not carry out the death penalty with Cain here? It would have been just. Perhaps God, in his mercy and in his grace, was giving Cain every opportunity and the time to repent, just like he does with you and I. And although we can't be sure how Cain ultimately responded to God's mercy and grace, what's important is how we respond to that same mercy and that same grace that God has extended to each of us. So now let's shift gears for a moment and talk about those other people who were out there. Who are those other people that Cain was afraid would kill him? Who are they? I mean, where did they come from? Because this is ultimately also going to help answer the question that is so often asked, which is, where did Cain get his wife? And there seems to be two primary thoughts on this subject. One thought is that Adam and Eve were not the only couple in the beginning. That the Bible is merely telling us the story of Adam and Eve because they are the line in the family tree from which the Messiah would descend. And if this is correct, then there would have obviously been other people out there. But the other thought, and the one that's uh, obviously most prevalent, is that these other people just represent a rapidly growing and expanding family from the offspring of Adam and Eve. You know, when people ask the question, where did Cain get his wife? They seem to forget, or maybe they're simply not aware, that Scripture tells us in the next chapter, in Genesis 5-4, that Adam had other sons and daughters. So it wasn't just Cain and Abel, and then later on we're going to see Seth. We don't know how many sons and daughters Adam and Eve had. We also don't know how long it was before Cain killed Abel. So there may have already been many sons and daughters, each of which could have had sons and daughters, and the population could actually have grown rather quickly, especially if the people lived to longer ages than we currently do. And regarding those long ages that are described in Genesis, where people are living five, six, seven, nine hundred plus years, I'm going to tackle that. I want to talk about that issue in the next episode. But if we look ahead to the genealogy in chapter 5, it tells us that every descendant mentioned of Adam, all the way to at least Lamech, had other sons and daughters. So the population would have grown rather quickly. 
Now, if this is the interpretation one chooses, and it, it seems to be the most uh, biblically accurate view, it obviously leads to the question of intermarriage among brothers and sisters, nieces, nephews, and so forth. And that may sound a bit strange to modern readers, because we have laws that prohibit those types of marriages. And yes, before you ask, we even have those types of laws here in Tennessee. Believe it or not, our family trees here don't always look like telephone poles. But it wasn't until God established the moral and civil laws for the nation of Israel in Leviticus that he ruled out marriage between siblings. I mean, the reason we have these types of laws is due to the chance of biological and genetic defects. But the risk of genetic defects would have developed slowly and would not have been a high risk until several generations. So there was no law that forbade the marriage of brothers and sisters in close family at that time. Verse 17 says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So again, Cain marries and has a son and names him Enoch. Not only that, but there are enough other people that Cain ultimately builds a city, naming the city Enoch after his son. You know, there's a, a saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And maybe that's what's going on with Cain's building of a city here. You know, that Hebrew word for city is ir, which can mean any permanently inhabited settlement that is protected by a wall. So it provides for some sort of civilization and protection. And it also provides for Cain a relief uh, from alienation and wandering. Now, there are some people who they look at the long lifespans described in the early parts of Genesis and they calculate the likely number of children that could have been born. And they argue that the population by this time could have easily been several hundred thousand. But as far as how many occupied the city of Enoch that Cain built, we have no way of knowing. And that Hebrew word for city gives no indication as to the size of the city. And there's certainly a difference between our modern cities and ancient cities, as well as differences between the ancient cities themselves, which makes defining what this city consisted of even more difficult. Verses 18 through 22 read, And to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zelah. And Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Namah. So what we have here is basically just a short description of some of the descendants of Cain. Now Lamech is said to have taken two wives here which is the first mention of polygamy in the Bible. And we see that Jabal is associated with tent-dwelling and animal husbandry. Jabal had a brother named Jabal, who was linked with musical instruments and the lyre and the pipe, which are essentially the harp and the flute. And then lastly, their half-brother, Tubalcane, was associated with metallurgy or uh, metalworking. So what we are seeing here is an increased level of sophisticated civilization taking place. Notice also that this is being credited and taking place under a godless line of descendants from Cain. I mean, don't forget, even unbelievers are made in the image of God. 
Even unbelievers are creative, capable, intelligent human beings. They all have abilities. I mean, even today, we have large numbers of unbelievers who utilize their God-given talents and abilities to bring us new technologies and discoveries. Verses 23 and 24, And Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So the most notable of Cain's descendants is Lamech. And in this, which is actually the first instance of uh, poetry found in Scripture, Lamech is bragging about committing revenge, and he seems to sort of revel in his love of violence here. And Lamech brags that if Cain is revenged sevenfold, then his is seventy-sevenfold. Like, he is more vengeful than Cain, uh, and more importantly, he's more bloodthirsty than Cain. And this attitude is a perfect example of why the Bible's eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was so important. It limited the extent of revenge. It limited retaliation. The Bible in Exodus 21 outlawed the um, indiscriminate justice that is celebrated by Lamech here, and it instituted retributive justice so that the punishment would fit the crime. As Professor John Walton puts it, the text moves from unrepentant Cain to defiant Lamech. Violence is glorified, and the mark of Cain no longer stands as a, a stigma of exile, but a badge of honor. The human situation is degenerating quickly. I find it interesting that Lamech says that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Because listen to what Jesus told Peter in Matthew 18, verse 21 and 2. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. And with that, we see the last of any mention of the descendants of Cain or Lamech. Their line may have been mentioned simply to point out that the natural progression, the natural outworkings of life apart from God, or, or perhaps to mention the beginning of urbanization. What we know for sure is that the focus now turns to Adam and Eve's son Seth and his line of descendants. So the last two verses in this chapter, 25 and 26, read, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. We don't know if he was the next in line or how many other children they had prior to Seth. But Seth is mentioned here, and many times you'll see in scripture that it's not necessarily the oldest or the firstborn that's focused on, but it's the one who will be most used by God. Remember, Ab and Eve had other sons and daughters, but only Seth is mentioned here. And Seth also has a son, names him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that name Enosh actually means weakness. And it's ironic because it's the uh, recognition of human frailty and weakness symbolized by the name Enosh that makes man aware that he needs God and that he is dependent upon God. And it says that at this time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. 
This is the beginning of worship, and it's actually an image of prayer or to enter into an intense relationship. So that phrase, to call on the name of the Lord, that's what it's meaning. It's like one who makes a petition to and praises the name of God, glorifying God rather than glorifying man. And that brings us to the end of chapter 4. In the next episode, we're going to tackle all of chapter 5, and we'll have a discussion of the long lifespans mentioned in Genesis and how we can possibly make sense of those. And until next time, thank you so very much for listening, and God bless.